Hey guys, welcome to the Bill Barnwell Show. I'm Bill Barnwell. Today, I am my own guest. Today, we're doing a solo mailbag show, answering some of your questions. Before we get into that, I want to quickly tell you that the ESPN College Football Podcast is now five days a week. Host Kirk Herbstreet, David Pollack, and Kevin Nagandi are back and joined this year by luminaries like Reese Davis, Matt Berry, Paul Feinbaum, Booger McFarland, and Joey Galloway. From weekend reaction to Monday mornings to previews, the ESPN College Football Podcast has it covered by the voices and perspectives you'll want to hear from. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if there's a game, chances are somebody's betting on it. Stream season two of Better Days, the Mike Greenberg hosted show, the Mike Greenberg hosted series that brings the true stories of unforgettable gambling adventures to life. All episodes are now streaming only on ESPN. Now let's get to the show with me. Bill Barnwell. Hey guys. So I'm excited to do a show today talking with you about your mailbag questions. I think it's a really sort of interesting time. We're a week, a little over two weeks, actually, a little under two weeks from the start of the NFL season. And I wanted to get to some of the stuff you're thinking about as you hit fantasy drafts, as you start maybe betting on the season, as you look at some of the stories that are happening around the NFL and a little bit away from the NFL as well. I got a lot of very interesting questions from people about things totally unrelated to the NFL. So we'll get to a couple of those, but mostly football questions today. Let's start with something kind of vaguely related to some of the news that broke this week. And let's start in Denver, where I don't know if Kyle Felter is from Denver, but he asked a question about the Broncos. Kyle Felter asked, the Broncos seem like they will win enough games to miss out on a top quarterback in next year's draft, when will they be able to escape quarterback purgatory? Of course, Denver this week uh, announced that they were going to start Teddy Bridgewater as their starting quarterback to begin the season. I, I tweeted this, I think. I'm not sure if I just thought it or tweeted it, which happens a lot. But with the Broncos, with their situation, I don't think starting Teddy Bridgewater week one means that we're not going to see Drew Luck this year. And if it doesn't, if we don't see Drew Locke this year, that probably means Teddy Bridgewater played great, which is not out of the realm of possibility. I'm a big Teddy Bridgewater fan, but I think that's a situation where we'll see Vic Fangio go back and forth throughout the season. I think we'll see some Teddy Bridgewater, some Drew Locke. Um, the Broncos are a team I put in my column this week about the five teams in the NFL most likely to improve in their quickest path to doing so is going to be improving their league worst turnover margin of minus 17 from a year ago. And Teddy Bridgewater, uh, historically, I think his interception rate is 2.2%. Um, he's a guy who can avoid takeaways at a better rate, you assume, than Drew Locke, who was unlucky last year, but interception rate over 3%, and a guy who doesn't always seem to know where the ball is going. So I think they can be a contender with Teddy Bridgewater, but to Cal's point, there's already a frustration of, oh, we should at least, you know, we should not tank, but we should stink because at least if we stink, we'll get a top five quarterback. And I don't agree with that necessarily. I think we've seen teams get quarterbacks without having to tank. I mean, look at the Buffalo Bills, a team that we're not tanking in Sean McDermott's first season, but we're certainly thinking about rebuilding that roster. Had Tyrod Taylor at quarterback, did make the move briefly to Nathan Peterman, but then Nathan Peterman was so bad they had to bring Tyrod back. They made the postseason that year, I think at nine and seven was their record as the wild card. 
And then they were able to get Josh Allen the next year. They traded up a little bit and got Josh Allen. And of course, Josh Allen, after uh, a rough start, has turned into a superstar quarterback as of last season. So I think you can get into that range if even if you are a competitive football team. Um, the Chiefs, I mean, were a playoff team, a perennial playoff team, and were able to trade up to, I think, 10 and get Patrick Mahomes. Um, Aaron Rodgers might be available next year and might be more appealing, might be more appealing to him to come play for a team that was competitive in 2020 than a team that was tanking and just totally bereft of talent. The Bucks with Tom Brady, I think another situation. So I did think there are other ways to find a quarterback besides simply having the worst record imaginable. So for Denver, I think the best thing for them is which quarterback gives us the best chance to win week after week. And I do think that barring some dramatic improvement from Drew Locke, which doesn't seem to be on the cards, given how he played uh, this year in camp, Teddy Bridgewater is probably that guy. Um, I think we had another tanking question here, if I'm not mistaken. Let me ask another question about, answer another question about quarterbacks here. Um, Tay Morgan asked on Twitter, hi, Bill, do you think it's realistic in this day and age to quote unquote, David Carr, a highly drafted rookie quarterback? This is a I'm assuming a verb that means to uh, put your quarterback in a untenable situation and have him basically get ruined because of that. Uh, Tay goes on to say it's held up as a reason not to start rookies right away, but it seems increasingly anachronistic. Any quarterback at risk of being David Card surely wouldn't have gone in the first round. I don't agree, um, Tay. I, I do think it seems like it happened to Josh Rosen. And I don't know that Josh Rosen would have been a superstar elsewhere. I don't think anyone can say for sure, but I think absolutely Josh Rosen played behind two terrible lines in Arizona and Miami without great talent around him for teams that were not particularly good. Um, And I think that really hurt him. I think Sam Darnold could be another example of that. I think it's so tough for us to gauge who would have been good elsewhere. So I do think that, teams are still taking quarterbacks who can be quote unquote David card in the first round, maybe not with the first overall pick the way that um, David Carr was maybe if Baker Mayfield in year two, uh, maybe if Baker Mayfield had been on the Browns and the Browns had hired someone who wasn't Kevin's defense and not, not hired Bill Callahan, not upgraded their offensive line. Maybe they just hired, you know, um, I'm trying to think if it would be a bad coach. I don't know. I don't want to pick, pick on a coach, but just like, you know, hired someone who was not, up to the standard of improving that situation, maybe Baker Mayfield would qualify for that, certainly. So I do think that it can happen to quarterbacks who are taken in the first round. Um, Jackson asks on Twitter, am I crazy to be cautiously optimistic about Josh Rosen as a Falcons fan? Figure with Ryan around to lead by example, there's an okay chance here eventually for Smith to do something similar to the Ryan Tannehill experience. Jackson, yes, you are crazy. Uh, P friends, 1.5 asks on Twitter, given Jalen Hurts' upside as a runner, both with scrambling and designed runs, where do you think he would have to rank league-wide as a passer this year for the Eagles to compete for the division title? I, of course, should mention my column again on the five teams most likely to improve. The Eagles are on there. When it comes to their chances of improving, I don't think they are positioned to make the sort of second year leap they did with Carson Wentz several years ago. When I don't know if you remember, they went and won the Super Bowl with Nick Foles as their starting quarterback. But I do think 
they're likely to improve in 2021. And I think with Jalen Hurts, um, you know, I, I think it's tough because I think part of it depends on how effective he is as a runner. I think Lamar Jackson is sort of an extreme example because he's so effective as a runner and, and a very solid quarterback as well that I think people will take either half of that formula and just say, oh, if he can just be, you know, X percent of what Lamar Jackson is, then he's going to be great. And and I don't know if Jalen Hurts has that sort of rushing or maybe even passing upside that Lamar Jackson has. But I think we saw him be an effective runner last year. He fumbled too much, but besides that was an effective runner and was not really effective as a passer. I think like a 52% completion percentage. Um, I know he was pretty good against the Saints, but numbers dropped down after that. Um, lost in kind of the shuffle of that uh, Nate Sudfeld disaster in week 17 was that Jalen Hurts was not playing well in that football game. Um, I don't think he has to be super efficient. I just think he has to hit big plays. I, I think he has to be sort of like a very throwbacky 70s quarterback where he doesn't have to have a great completion percentage, but if he can average maybe seven and a half yards per attempt, if he can hit chunk plays and, and scare teams who want to bring that that sort of eighth player into the box or scare teams who want to try and play, um, you know, that sort of like Brandon Staley gap and a half defense, if the offensive line can be effective around him, then I think the passing game will do enough for the Eagles to have a solid offense. I'm also very high on Devontae Smith. So I think that um, Devontae Smith has to be a threat after the catch. I think they have to have the ability to get easy plays for Jalen Hurts. Like I, I think yeah, I want to see them hit those chunk plays, but I also want to see them create easy opportunities for Jalen Hurts to feel good about what he's doing. Um, you know, I, I, I think, and I don't want to put like a, I'll put a rank on it. I think if he can be like 24th in passer rating or maybe 20th in QBR, because that includes uh, rushing impact as well. I think the Eagles can be a team people are going to be scared of. I think they're better than people are giving them credit for right now. Um, let's go back to Ryan Tannehill, actually. Sean O'Sullivan asks, what sort of question, what sort of season, excuse me, does Tannehill need to have to get the approval he deserves, or is he doomed to always be underappreciated? I was intrigued by this question because is Ryan Tannehill underappreciated? I mean, I would say financially, He's appropriately appreciated. He's one of the highest paid quarterbacks in football on a significant long-term deal. But I think the thing maybe people miss about Ryan Tannehill is that, yes, he is super efficient and that is incredibly valuable. And he deserves a ton of credit for being this hyper-efficient passer, especially, of course, off of play action. He doesn't throw the ball that much. I mean, outside of Lamar Jackson and maybe Jalen Hurts this upcoming season, teams ask their quarterbacks to throw the ball more and Ryan Tannehill throws the ball for Tennessee. He is the one of the lowest volume quarterbacks in all of football. And maybe given how much of an impact Lamar Jackson has as a runner with the ball in his hands, I think Ryan Tannehill probably has less to do than any other quarterback in football. Now, yes, like if you're going to be a low usage player, quarterback, you need to be super efficient. Ryan Tannehill is, but I think he's probably appropriately rated. I feel like People know Ryan Tannehill can make you pay as part of that offense. But I think the big question, especially after writing Julio Jones, is if Derrick Henry gets hurt, can Ryan Tannehill be the focal point 
of that offense. I think we've seen games where he's looked like he can be. And I think we've seen games, especially in the postseason, where it doesn't look like he is capable of doing that. So I think he has a lot riding on this season, not financially necessarily, but in terms of you know whether he's going to be a guy treated as an MVP candidate or a guy kind of in that Kurt, like a, maybe like a better Kurt Cousins where he's great on play action, um, but not a guy who is going to single-handedly regularly win you football games. Um, let's take a question about another quarterback here. Um, let's talk about two quarterbacks, actually. Uh, these are sort of related. Uh, Cascadia Pirate mentioned the column I wrote a couple of years ago about the possibility of quarterbacks getting traded at the end of their rookie deals. And, and I think if you're a listener to this podcast, you've probably seen this column. Um, I've talked about it a bunch, but basically briefly, I'll sum it up this way. Um, the idea that you would, instead of having a cheap quarterback on a rookie deal and then paying that quarterback a lot of money and having to spend less money around that quarterback, the idea of sort of cycling through rookie quarterbacks on cheap deals and always having the salary cap space to surround them with talent. And then this is the part I think people miss crucially using the using the quarterback at the end of that rookie deal to trade for the draft picks you would need for the next quarterback to take his place. So basically imagine if the Rams had, instead of re-signing Jared Goff to a massive deal, and then a couple of years later, just changing their mind and giving up on it after maybe that Super Bowl season, or maybe the year after trading him away for draft picks, and then using a pick at the top of the next year's draft to take um, a quarterback who would have taken Jared Goff's place. Um, thinking about the 2020 draft, maybe like, for example, if the Rams had traded Jared Goff to the Chargers and then used the picks to draft Justin Herbert. Now, of course, it's not that simple. I don't know that that would have worked, but this is just a hypothetical example. So Cascadia Pirate asks, how has the larger NFL successes and failures since that column changed your opinion on rookie quarterback deals versus vet contracts. And I think there's two things that come to mind for me. I would say first and foremost, I was someone who was pretty skeptical of those big trade-ups for rookie quarterbacks. I think that um, I'm always very skeptical of big trade-ups for players. Uh, You see that in my work typically. It's not always right, of course. There's times where trading up for players works out great. Uh, I wrote a column about this a couple of weeks ago where I was talking about a lot of big trade-ups and a lot of big trades in general where I kind of went back and looked at all those trades. And some of them look pretty good in hindsight, some of them not so much. Uh, but I think I'm I'm a little more on board with them now. I think that when the Goff and Wentz trade happens, even when the Patrick Mahomes trade happened, I was pretty skeptical of those deals because it was such a big, it was such a significant amount of surplus value being traded away. But the surplus value you're getting with these quarterbacks as the top of the quarterback market rises is so valuable. And when you can have a quarterback signed for three or $4 million where the top of the market is $35 million. I mean, even if that quarterback is just average, it's such a significant opportunity to have one of those guys on a rookie deal. And I, I know it's only for three years or it's just the rookie contract length of four or five years. Um, you do get some leverage as you negotiate that second contract, but uh, typically we see guys like, you know, uh, Josh Allen or Deshaun Watson or, um, Wentz or Goff signing after three years, but it's still a ton of money you're saving over the first three years. So I do think that the my skepticism about those deals has been not aged all that well. I think I'm more inclined to be okay with trading up for a quarterback. 
in terms of how my feelings have changed about the deal, I'm I'm more inclined to think that those rookie, con- rookie quarterbacks are more valuable. I've wrote about that. I want to say earlier in the offseason, I read about it at some point recently. Um, but I think the evidence says that it's a it's still a good deal that that even though teams have gone more in that direction of going after quarterbacks on rookie deals, um, they're playing better than they were in years past. They're not, it's not like there's been a drop-off in terms of the play. Um, and we've seen the veteran contracts go wrong. We've seen guys like Wentz and Goff, you know, flail on their second contracts, and for teams to have to eat a ton of dead money to trade those guys. So I I think there is a logical way to go about that. And this leads to the next question from Raz uh, Panarjan. Sorry if I mispronounced your name, Raz. That's on me, but I believe it's Panarjan. Uh, The Browns, Raz asks, don't seem to have a sense of urgency to resign Baker Mayfield. I don't know if I agree with that, but they have not resigned him. That's fair to say. Do you think they would adopt your idea of flipping Baker and trying to get another high pick for a cheap rookie quarterback in the draft? They are a very analytically based front office. And I think this is an excellent question, Roz. I absolutely agree that the Browns are a very analytically based front office. Um, Kevin Stefanski is very smart. I think Andrew Barry is very smart. I think if anybody in the NFL would have a serious conversation about this possibility, it would be the Cleveland Browns. And I think if there's ever a quarterback where you could make a case that this would be a bad idea based on what you've seen after three years, it would be Baker Mayfield, a guy who, when things have been right, when he's had the right players around him, especially good protection on the offensive line, he looks like a very good quarterback. When things don't look good, when the line is not playing all that well, when his receivers are, I guess, all afflicted by COVID like they were last year, um, when, when things are not right for Baker Mayfield, he looks like he's overmatched. It looks a lot more like Sam Darnold. Now, in that situation, in the past, we've looked at guys like Goff, for example, and we said, okay, like, would this guy be able to succeed when things are not perfect for him? It hasn't always worked out that way. When the Rams offensive line struggled, Jared Goff struggled. When Sean McVay didn't have maybe all the advantages that he had a few years ago, when the offense was sort of transitioning a bit, Jared Goff struggled. And we've seen that with Baker Mayfield. To me, though, I think so much of what's going to happen with this Baker Mayfield situation depends on how he plays in 2021. Because if he's the guy from the stretch run last year where he looked like he was the focal point of that football team when the Browns were throwing the ball more frequently than I think a lot of people noticed uh, on early downs when they were more of a pass-friendly team. And now that you're adding Odell Beckham back, um, if Baker Mayfield is that guy, that guy's very effective. And the Browns not only will pay him, but should pay him. And I would have no issues with that, with that at all. But chances are in 2021, the offensive line is not going to be as healthy or as effective as it was in 2020. I think their linemen missed a total of seven starts last year. They're five starting offensive linemen during the regular season. Now, if Baker takes a major step backwards, if he doesn't look like that guy he was from the second half of 2020, if he looks more like the guy from 2019, I think the Browns would maybe not trade him because I don't think he'd have a ton of trade value, but I think just probably say, okay, we're going to play this one out. We're going to follow maybe the Joe Flacco year to year situation and kind of see what happens here. And if you are that guy, because we don't know, you've been inconsistent. Um, And I think that the fans in Cleveland having been, I think Cleveland fans have been so, um, they're not going to like this, but it's the truth from at least the the Twitter feedback I've gotten. Like 
they've really gone on a roller coaster with Baker, where after year one, if you criticized Baker, you were uh, an idiot. And after year two, if you complimented Baker, you were an idiot. And if after year three, we're back to the criticism thing, where if you criticize Baker, you're a moron and there's no possible way to uh, justify any criticism of Baker Mayfield. And I think that, you know, if he, if he takes a step backwards in year four, we're going to be back to where we were in year two. So I think this year is going to mean a lot. And I think that I don't think the Browns want to be bad by any means, but I think it would be easier for them if he were good enough to make the decision for the Cleveland Browns or struggle to the point where he sort of made the decision for them in the opposite direction. But I think the tough part for any team, if you're going to do this, is that if you make this decision, if you trade that quarterback, especially for a team that's had so few good quarterbacks over the last 20 years as the Cleveland Browns, if you make this decision, you're basically all in with the next guy. Like if Bill Belichick made the decision, it wouldn't be as big of a deal. But if the Browns do it and the next guy isn't as good as Baker Mayfield is, everyone's getting fired. And that's a lot of risk. I think it's a risk worth taking given the upside and the opportunity you might get if you have a guy in the next draft who you really believe in. But I think that's a very scary risk. And a lot of coaches and a lot of GMs, that might include the Cleveland Browns, would not be willing to take that risk. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there is no competition. And right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a Jets Pizza location near you. Again, try Jets Signature 8-Corner Pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's number 8, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza, better because it has to be. Let's talk about a team that has a quarterback already, but about a different position on their roster. The New York Jets, of course, who are excited about Zach Wilson. Uh, Daniel Shama asks, had Carl Lawson not gotten hurt, would the Jets have had a chance to be interesting or competitive this year? Eh, I don't think so, Daniel. I, I, you know, I like Carl Lawson. I think he was a super underrated player in Cincinnati. Someone I was writing about from his rookie season on. His rookie year, he was very impressive. Second year, I think he tore his ACL. He had an injury in his second year, um, and then kind of took a little while to get back going. But then, by the time he finished his rookie deal, was back to that level of being a really underrated pass rusher. I think, honestly, I don't think the Jets line, the over-under in Vegas moved when Carl Lawson got hurt. If it did, it was by no more than a half win. Like he He's a useful player, but I don't think the Jets were going to make or break their season based on whether Carl Lawson was an impactful edge rusher. Um, I like where the Jets are going. I like some of the moves they've made. I like a, a good chunk of the moves they've made. But we're still at the point with the Jets where so much of what we're hoping, if you're a Jets fan, is good is perception or, or projection, I should say. Um, like, yes, people should be excited about Zach Wilson. We don't know if Zach Wilson's any good. Like, people were excited about Sam Darnold, and he was pretty bad with the Jets. Um, we don't know about the secondary. There's major questions at running back. Half the offensive line is a question. And even the offensive lineman, I mean, Elijah Vera Tucker should try to be very good, but we don't know at this point. Like he's just starting his NFL career. And then uh, Mekhi Becton was awesome as a rookie, and that's great. But 
you know, who knows if Elijah Vera Tucker will be on the same level. I hope so, but I don't think we can say for sure. I think they'll be better this year um, than they were a year ago. Not hard after losing Adam Gase, but I think the target is really 2022 for the Jets because I think that's the, of course, the famous second year in the Shanahan QBX scheme with Zach Wilson. Um, you get that extra first round pick from the Seahawks trade, having another year in the system. Um, I think you're, that's the point where I want to see a big improvement from the Jets. That's where I want to see that sort of big leap to 500 or close, I guess you can't do 500 anymore, but that seven, eight win range. I don't think that would have happened this year, but I do think that's maybe in the cards for 2022. Let's answer another Jets question, actually, uh, from Robbie, who said, I counted seven first round picks on the D-line for the 49ers roster from last season. Do you think there is any chance that Rob Asala struggles to coach a defense that isn't already loaded with talent and potential? And I think the answer, Robbie, is yes, of course. But that's true of any coach. I mean, I don't want to remind Jets fans of what happened with Adam Gase, but Adam Gase spent his time, most of his tenure, as an NFL coach before becoming a head coach with Peyton freaking Manning as his quarterback. And he looked great and he was okay in a season with the bears with, I think Jay Cutler was the primary quarterback that year. Um, Adam Gase was not qualified to be a head coach. and wasn't very good at it. Even if he had a successful first season with Ryan Tannehill, what I'll say about this situation though, when it comes to Robert Sala is that the 49ers ranked 26th, and defensive adjusted games lost. The fifth outsider sat in 2019, and they were dead last in adjusted games lost last year, the most injured defense in all football. Didn't have Nick Bosa for pretty much the entire season. Richard Sherman missed a good chunk of the year. Most of their secondary got hurt. The Forrest Buckner uh, star defensive tackle got traded, and they fell from second in DVOA to sixth. It wasn't like they fell to 15th or 20th or 25th. It wasn't like they were running a super complex scheme like they didn't make any adjustments they ran a, a real basic scheme and didn't make any adjustments like Robert Sala adjusted to the talent that was missing both in 2019 and in 2020 and had excellent seasons on defense with both of those uh injury hit rosters like I I know they had seven I don't know I'm taking Robbie's word for it here I know they had a lot of talent but that talent was not always available and it wasn't always playing at a high level before Robert Sala got there and kind of grew into that job. So to me, I think, I, I don't think that Robert Sala is a lock to be a great NFL head coach, but I think you have to give him a ton of credit for making an impressive defense work with granted a lot of talent available on paper, but not always available in practice. Let's stick in the AFC East here. Actually, no, yeah, stick at the AFC East here. Uh, Dan Sullivan asked, hey, Bill, how do you think the Patriots will balance different offensive schemes between Cam Newton and Mac Jones when they're so different? Or do you think they've already chosen internally and are holding off announcing it until their first game? It's a good question. And I I don't think it's going to change that much. And I, I think where it will change is with the running game. Because obviously Cam is a threat to run in a way that Mac Jones is not. Um, I think it'll change in short yardage where Mac Jones is not going to be you know, running power, running quarterback power or, or beer or anything on a regular basis. But I also think that the Patriots could use Cam in those situations as a 
short yardage option. And it wouldn't shock me if he got a sort of Taysom Hill usage package uh, as the second quarterback. When it comes to the passing game, though, I don't think it's going to be all that much different. I think with either quarterback, I would expect a lot of RPOs, a lot of easy reads, a lot of tread, you know, safe completions. I don't think Mac Jones is going to come in and look like Tom Brady when it comes to, you know, how he's reading defenses, how he is, um, you know, moving stuff around, how he's changing stuff at the line. And I think Cam is underrated when it comes to that stuff, uh, when it comes to reading defenses, when it comes to changing things to the line of scrimmage as a veteran quarterback in the NFL. So, you know, I, I think that Mac Jones may be a more accurate passer in the long term than Cam Newton. Uh, maybe so as a rookie as well. But I do think that, you know, the passing game is not going to change all that much. I think the running game um, outside of the red zone and outside of short yardage is going to be different. And I think that the Patriots, you know, have been running essentially the same running game uh, with a, a few tweaks here and there, and more tweaks last year for Cam, but generally with Brady, we're running the same rushing attack for, for 20 years. So I think that it's not going to be too different for Mac Jones if he is a starting quarterback. And I think he will be uh, the week one starter. Um, I don't think they've announced it yet, but it should happen, I think pretty soon i imagine i'll make mac jones the week one starter um given what happened with uh cam missing time because of covid uh let's take another question about a quarterback here from lisa brzezinski who says which team or player do you think had the best offseason in terms of setting themselves up for the future this is actually a really easy question for me the answer is trey lance the niners quarterback ends up with kyle shanahan for the next several years, you would assume for his full rookie deal uh, with Kyle Shanahan, who's uh, a long-term coach with the Niners, with a ton of talent around him at receiver, at running back, along the offensive line, um, dream landing spot for Trey Lance. No different to me than Patrick Mahomes several years ago landing with Andy Reid, the quarter, the, the coach who could sort of you know make the most out of his talent. I think that if Trey Lance went to the Bears, I would have been very worried. But going to the Niners. Going to Kyle Shanahan, um, he had no choice in the matter. It wasn't like he got to pick the Niners, but going there, I think, such a great situation, and he's going to have the best possible chance to turn into a superstar over the next few years, in which I think that's exactly what is going to happen with Trey Lance in the years to come. A few questions left here as we finish up. Uh, let's get a question. Let's get a let's do a hypothetical question here from Flannel Man Dan, mostly because I like the name flannel band band assuming all other factors were equal would you win more football games slash have a better offense with a bottom three offensive line and top 10 offensive weapons or bottom three offensive weapons and a top 10 offensive line this is a great hypothetical question thank you dan i gave this one a lot of thought and i lean towards the top 10 ol because i think is going to give the quarterback more time to throw, which gives your receivers who aren't very good in this scenario more time to get open. You can run more complex concepts. You can sort of scheme stuff up and you're going to have an effective running game because we know, or at least we have strong evidence suggesting that when it comes to effective running attacks, it's more about the offensive line and more about the scheme than it is about the individual runner. Now, if we imagine the alternate scenario We've seen teams like this really struggle on offense in recent times. The Giants come to mind for me as a team with great weapons and a pretty bad offensive line. 
granted, you could say Daniel Jones is the problem there, but they were bad with Eli as well before Daniel Jones got there. Um, and we've seen weapons, great weapons, in places where they had great offensive lines, especially at running back, struggle immediately after leaving and whiff elsewhere. Guys like Le'Veon Bell, uh, going back a few years, DeMarco Murray, before him, Edgerin James. Um, you know, guys who left comfortable situations with great talent up front who were anonymous in their new spot. I guess DeMarco Murray was fine about one year in Tennessee, but uh, DeMarco Murray was a mess with the Eagles. Le'Veon Bell was not the same player after joining the Jets. And that could be aging. It could be a lot of different things. But I think that overall, we've seen weapons struggle elsewhere in their new spot. So to me, I think the offensive line is just more important. I think you want to have great both, ideally, but I think the line is the first thing that comes to mind for me uh, when it comes to making an offense look better outside of quarterback. So I would go top 10 line, bottom through weapons. I could be talked into the alternate situation, but I'm I'm leaning that way. Uh, Greg Rosenthal. Yes, that Greg Rosenthal, the Greg Rosenthal of NFL Network asks, Thoughts on Roto World's use of K1 to describe Ryan Suckup's value. I I DM Greg about this because it bothered me. I I mean, if you've read fantasy football content, which is all good, I, I read Roto World every single night. Roto World, NBC Sports Edge, excuse me, every single day. Um, you'll see someone talked about it as a quarterback one in fantasy football, which means that they're one of the ten or twelve best quarterbacks in football. Um, on a week-to-week basis when it comes to fantasy football purposes. An RB1 for a guy who's expected to be one of the 12 best running backs that week or wide receiver, same thing. Tight end, same thing. I've seen TE1. I've seen RB1. I've seen wide receiver one. I think QB, I've seen QB1. I've never seen K1 before until Ryan Suckup came up. And I, I think it's disrespectful to streamers. We know that kickers are just not important when it comes to fantasy football. They shouldn't be involved in leagues. Um, whoever started fantasy football decades ago, uh, put kickers in the lineup, and that is has stuck for the vast majority of leagues ever since. Thankfully, now with best ball, now with uh, leagues changing their formulas in some ways and changing their situations, we've seen fewer leagues with kickers, which I think is better for everyone involved. Um, and I think that if you have a kicker spot in your league, you should be streaming. Like you should, unless you have like an absolute nut kicker, like Harrison Bucker or Justin Tucker that you got for free in the last round or close, you know, close to free. Uh, you should be streaming kickers from week to week. I think it's also disrespectful to Kyler Murray, whose nickname, whose Twitter and social, and social media handle, I think everywhere is K1. Uh, that's Kyler's. You, you can't do that. So to me, I think we need to get off this bandwagon before we see Team Defense 1 or TD1 or IDPLB1. It's just, it's a slippery slope. And I think we've already gone too far down that slope. Uh, Vitor Camargo asks in the NBA, you have the so-called 82 game players who are more valuable over the course of the regular season and 16 game players whose skill set are more suited to the postseason. Is there an NFL equivalent? Who'd be your 17 slash four game players in the NFL? It's an interesting question. And I, I, I think about this more at baseball really than anything else where I think you have the ability in the postseason to sort of construct a roster that is more, I think Joe Sheen put it this more tactical, like with baseball during the regular season, you have to just have guys on your bench who can play for a day. who can play multiple spots. You can 
just fill in when you need a guy to um, get a day off or a guy hits the DL. Like, like it's more about just having every spot covered. Whereas I think in the postseason, you change your lineup and you want it to be more tactical. You want to have, you're not worried about giving a guy a day off just for the sake of having a day off. It's more about, okay, what can this guy on my bench do? Is he going to be a guy who I can put in in this situation? Uh, if I need power, if I need speed, if I need still a base, if I need to have a good defender in this late game situation. And especially on the pitching side, like for this particular matchup, we've seen teams, you know, drastically change their roster based on the lineup of the opposing baseball team. Getting this back to football, I don't know that it's that simple. I, I think it's more about a player's usage changing. Um, I think we see teams who are more comfortable with resting a player more frequently during the regular season before sort of unleashing them to a bigger role in the postseason. I think the obvious one, the obvious example here would be Rob Gronkowski, a player who was not necessarily an everyday part of the lineup for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last year during the regular season. As you can hear probably I'm typing, I'm getting his week-to-week game locks. Um, but Gronk was not, you know, a focal point of the offense. But hey, gets to the postseason. Um, you see Gronk is playing quite frequently and is a more regular part of the offense, and especially in the Super Bowl where he caught two touchdowns and helped beat the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, he wasn't as focal when it came to the passing game during the prior weeks in the postseason, but Gronk played more frequently and, I mean, played almost 90% of the snaps against the Packers, almost 90% against the Chiefs. Those would have been two of his highest single week-to-week snap count percentages. Same thing, I think maybe even a better example would be a guy like Fletcher Cox with the Eagles several years ago, where during the regular season, he was typically a 65, 70, 75% snap count guy. And you get to the postseason, Fletcher Cox, because he's awesome and the Eagles need him to be uh, an impactful player during the postseason, well, he's playing basically every snap during the postseason. Um, I've heard of the exact numbers in front of me, but Fletcher Cox, but he was, yeah, I mean, like typically like a 75, 80% guy during the regular season in 2017, and then 90%, 79%, 89% in their three playoff victories that year. So I think it's more about usage when it comes to the NFL than sort of a guy with a different skill set necessarily. Like I know that uh, Julian Edelman comes to mind as a guy who was supposed to be, you know, better in the postseason. Maybe he was. He certainly had some great postseason games, but um, I don't think like his skill set changed or his usage, or more about maybe just his usage or the fact that the Pats just needed to throw a lot, given that they were in so many uh, tight games and shootouts and crazy games during the Edelman era. Last question here, very football related, but topical, given that I was in the UK from the past week. It's from Mahesh K. He says, what is your typical Nando's order and what level of spice do you add in the extra sauce at the table? This is a question dear and dear to my heart. Nando's is a very important restaurant to me. If you're not familiar with Nando's, which I think most Americans are not because they don't, no, I don't want to say that, but at least most Americans who have not been to a place where there is a Nando's, which is mostly, I think, UK, Australia, Africa, um, some places in Asia. Nando's is a peri-peri chicken restaurant, a spicy chicken restaurant. It's phenomenal. It is the the, the absolute go-to place for me when I am traveling to one of those places. Literally, I went to the UK uh, for the last week and a half. I went and saw some soccer. I went and saw some art. 
And I went to Nando's. The first thing I did after checking into my hotel, after landing, I was jet lagged. I was tired. I walked 10 minutes to my local London Nando's and was delighted to enjoy. Uh, I don't want to say a cheeky Nando's. I don't think I, I qualify as cheeky, but certainly a delicious Nando's lunch. Um, if you live in the U.S., Chicago and D.C., where I'm in the D.C. area now, I'm not there because of Nando's, but it doesn't hurt. Uh, I wasn't upset uh, to end up in D.C. and have access to Nando's. I live like two minutes from a Nando's right now, and I, I may get it for lunch today myself. Um, my order typically depends on where you are because the menu changes from place to place. It's generally the same. There's going to be chicken. There's going to be uh, fries. There's going to be vegetables. There's going to be uh, snow spicy stuff. I'm in the UK, I was just there. I went usually for chicken thighs. I went extra hot. I know that Nando's likes to hype up the the heat of the spice. I I'm okay with it. Like I think the extra hot is a good balance of spice and and taste. I would say extra extra hot, a little beyond what I want typically. It is hot for sure, but I think it tastes more heat than flavor at that point. And I do, of course. Mahesh, add more extra hot at the table. It's cooked, marinated in extra hot. I'm still dousing my chicken in extra hot Nando sauce at the table. I think you can order the sauce on Amazon if you are someone who uh, is interested in more Nando's where you live. But I would recommend it. Certainly a delicacy to me. I am big Nando's head. My dream, of course, never going to happen. If I can get an Endo's black card, I think that would be the ultimate in uh that would be the only thing I'd be willing to sell out for. Like I don't I don't want to, you know, do ads on Twitter. I don't want to do ads on Instagram. Not that I would, not that anyone cares about me as an influencer, but Nando's influencer, I am in. I will always be in. I will always be ready to fight for the Nando's cost. Leaving it at that. Hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. Um I love getting to your questions. I feel like you guys presented some cool ideas, maybe some opinions that I don't necessarily even agree with sometimes, but I think different perspectives is always valuable. We're almost here, man. It's a week or two away before the season starts. I mean, it is happening. We're going to have a couple more shows before the season begins. Uh, we're going to have a show next week. I think you may tape a second show next week, depending on how the schedule works with Labor Day. Um, but we'll have two more shows for you before the season begins. And then you guys know it. We'll get back on that grind, back on the schedule. Um, we'll have audio every single week talking about the NFL. Uh, some of the guests you have come to love will be back. Some guests who you haven't heard before will be joining us. Hopefully um, you'll enjoy it, but always love uh, answering your guys' questions. We'll do more of these during the season as well. So thanks so much for listening and more audio coming next week.